five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. as I put a background together for the show today. A very interesting video by Mr. Robert Palmer looking for clues. Um, were they leaving clues in the video? Feeling very like a cross between uh, the Shining and maybe Eyes Wide Shut. And at the end, of course, you have the the giant reptilian who comes in. I mean, what's really weird about that video is that I actually think there's another video for that song. And it was the video that I kind of grew up watching with on MTV when that song was popular. It was like he was kind of dancing around and um, there was the marimba thing going on. And um, I've actually never seen that video. That was the first time I've ever played that video because that's not the version of the song that that I'm uh, that I'm used to, which is kind of odd. And yet it sort of fits with the uh, subject matter for today's show, you know, looking looking for clues. Right. And this is all about like gatekeepers and uh, the quest for perfection um, and imperfection. And we're going to kind of travel a little bit today because I think there's some interesting themes associated with this whole whole idea of, of um, perfection and imperfection, as uh, particularly as it relates to the movie um, The Sound of Freedom. And as I was talking about over on Astro Weather, Twitter was a firestorm yesterday because of like allegations that uh, Tim Ballard worked for the Clintons and was kind of a a, a lackey for the Clintons and and their their trafficking program. Right. And then there's the whole kind of dark and sordid backstory with Mormonism. Um, it's funny, Jason Whitlock talked about the sound of freedom. Jason Whitlock loves heroes. Jason Whitlock looks for heroes. He looks for culture heroes so that they can remind him that there are good people in the world, that there is a possibility of hope and change. And I've actually seen Jason Whitlock kind of do a bit of a 180 on Martin Luther King. 
who was one of his culture heroes. So Jason Woodlock has, has evolved. And, but the problem with assigning value to culture heroes is that they'll always fail you because they're human and they're imperfect. It's just what degree of imperfection do we live with? What degree of illusion begins to dilute and um, pollute the story or the narrative? Or the truth. You know, can can there be shades of gray? Like I remember back in the day, you know, reading about this guy Bogreitz. Some of you might remember him. He was the the uh, character that Rambo was based on. And I think Bo might have been hired by Ross Perot, although I'm not entirely sure ross could have had his own operation but bogreitz was one of these guys that went in and rescued pow's and mias and so the movie rambo was was basically created about him and he was one of these guys that was rising very very quickly um in the sort of patriot freedom circle and he was sort of around at the same time as Bill Cooper. Bill Cooper is another one of these guys. Everybody lionizes Bill Cooper and how Bill Cooper was on it, right? He was he was on it and he was talking about exactly, you know, where we are now and the dark forces of control that were, you know, behind everything. Bill Cooper was a very imperfect person really imperfect bill bill cooper was a raging alcoholic um rumors were that he was abusive to his wife right i mean it's it's like if we searched deep enough into everybody we'd find skeletons in in our closets including mine right we all have them and it's just a matter of to like to what degree people have them and i think on the other side of it is um what is the message and what is the overt and uh, covert meaning of the message so let, let's talk about more about the sound of freedom. And we'll get into some kind of interesting, weird little parallels around perfection and truth and what people will go to for it, go to what ends they'll go to for it, and what ultimately we wind up believing. So Tim Ballard comes out of a Mormon background, nine kids. Uh, work for Department of Homeland Security. Well, first of all, it's like a normalization of the Department of Homeland Security, right? I mean, I'm not here to dispel the the potential power of the movie because I think inherently there are some things about the movie that are actually good and that are um, worth supporting. Right. It just depends on like, it's really interesting. Like, like, so I'm going to kind of backtrack and then Chattori, I promise I'll get to you, but 
you know, I've been watching this thing with with Jordan Poole and the and the Warriors and Draymond Green and the punch. And I'm of the mindset that Draymond Green is a um, borderline sociopath. And he's really good at basketball. And he has formed kind of a tight-knit bond inside of the Golden State Warriors. And he's sort of the ringleader. And he got away with assaulting Jordan Poole. Like, it's on video. If I had done that to somebody else, and it was on video, I guarantee you I would be in jail. I, I, I would be in jail. But not only did Draymond Green not go to jail, he wasn't even suspended for one fucking game. You know, they, he sat out a couple practices so he could soul search. And then opening night, he's there and they're getting their rings. It was like, you know, none of it ever happened. And Jordan Poole got clocked uh, on video just about a week before it all happened, before the start of the season. And so, I, you know, I post on social media and get into like some sports stuff. And the Draymond Green thing was, you know, I, I chime in on it because I actually like Jordan Poole. Uh, he's, he's really imperfect. You know, he's a bit of an egotist and he's young and he's a borderline narcissist. But you know what, you know what he is? He's fucking entertaining, right? He's entertaining. I look at basketball as a form of entertainment if I watch it. And the only time I really watched it was when the Warriors were playing. And I'd usually watch it after the fact with, um, you know, highlights. But Jordan Poole was entirely entertaining. Like, he was electric, right? You know, in art or sports or media or whatever, right? Like, having somebody whose talent, rises above the level of talent around them is really something to behold. It's just things that we as kind of normal, ordinary, everyday people cannot do. And when somebody can demonstrate that they can do these things and do them in a way that has its kind of own signature imprimatur and flair, well, it's, it's like going to a good concert and seeing somebody who can, you know, command the stage and, or be virtuosic with their, with their instrument doesn't make them perfect. Like it doesn't make them perfect. A lot of these people are very imperfect people, but for a brief moment in time, you can kind of sit back and go, Oh, wow. This is, this is entertaining, right? Like you don't have to buy in hook, line and sinker. Now I may contradict myself here a little bit, but um, so I chimed in on, you know, Draymond Green is somebody that he's got issues. He's a good player, but at some point, the issues get bigger than the ability to play. And that's when the baggage gets heavy. And that's the way it is with everything, right? It's the way it is with, with life. You, you know, we all have relationships. And relate there, there are relationships where they're most relationships are, are are beautifully imperfect, right? If you get close to having a, a manageable, workable, meaningful relationship, and there's gaps, you're you're doing pretty good, I think, in my estimation. There's some people whose relationships are just hand in glove, and they just fit perfectly, and they're there, they're out there. I'm not saying that the two people can't be in love. And that love, you know, takes some hits every now and then, but it's one of those things that's transcendent, right? But 
there are relationships where at times the relationship can suffer. And if you've been in a relationship with somebody who's kind of high maintenance, um, there's always trade-offs to that relationship. You know, like for men, I'm just being honest, you know, sometimes really high maintenance, borderline, you know, crazy women, you know, have really interesting personalities and, you know, they can be, you know, crazy in bed, right? And so it's like, well, okay, at what level do you kind of, and for women, it's the same thing. It's not just for men. It's like, it's like the bad boy. Yeah. At what point do you put up with like the, the, the extracurricular stuff that comes along with it? Because the other things kind of outweigh that thing, right? We all have to make some kind of peace with that. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. So I pointed this out on this one post and this one guy came in and he said, you know, basically, you know, go root for another team, right? Cause Draymond's my boy and I'm all in and I don't care what he does. Like he will ride and die with Draymond green. And it's an interesting perspective, right? Like there's, there's there's almost a gang-like loyalty to it. You know what I mean? That most people don't have and don't really understand unless you're a Democrat. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, there's something slightly redeeming about this very extreme position. Like he didn't care. But at what point does he not care? At what point does does somebody like Draymond Green tip over into the scales of toxicity or danger. Does, does Draymond Green have to get drunk at the wheel of a car and um, kill somebody? Would he still ride with Draymond? Ride and die with Draymond? What, what, what if Draymond, you know, part of the discussion of the show today, he's not, I'm not saying he is. But what if he was a pedophile? What if it came out that Draymond Green was fucking around with little kids? Would he have the same? I don't because he was very black and white. I don't care what he does. I'll ride and die with Draymond Green. And like there's a there's a twisted beauty in that kind of loyalty and devotion. And at the same time, that loyalty and devotion to that degree has got us into some serious issues culturally. Like, I don't care. It, we'll just use Biden. I don't care. I don't care if Biden is senile or has dementia. I don't care. And the reason I don't care is because Donald Trump's not in office and all those people aren't around. And I will ride and die with Biden. I don't, I don't really care. I don't care if he sniffs hair. I don't care if his son sniffs Coke. I don't care. Right. It's that kind of party affiliation or that loyalty, the same loyalty with this guy who was, you know, gonna gonna hug Draymond Green until uh, to the end of time, right? Like in, in what happens when you have that kind of loyalty is that there is in a lot of ways kind of an unshakable power for better or worse, right? There's an unshakable power that comes along with that. 
where where people aren't circumspect and they aren't looking at like, is this really healthy? Is this a really healthy relationship? Or is are the forces behind this movie being manipulative? And if they're being manipulative, to what extent are they being manipulative? And, and then why? Right. So we're in this really interesting, like, flux point. And we've been in this fixed relationship with the nodes and Taurus and Scorpio, and they're about to change. And they're about to go into all in Aries and like South Node Libra. There are no fence sitters, right? The Taurus, the true node in Taurus, we're all just looking for like safe ground, really, with the true node in Taurus. Um, And just trying to stabilize out after the craziness of Gemini. But what we've seen is we've seen the, the gurgling and the bubbling of the swamp with with the south node in scorpio and everything that kind of goes along with all that seamy kind of underworld stuff right we had to get to the final degrees of the uh, south node in scorpio which is really the first degrees um you know to to get to the kind of the bottom of it It, we're here we're queer and we're coming for your kids i mean it doesn't get much more south node in scorpio than that you know these entities that are possessed and they're telling you exactly what their plan is right that's that's what that's really a big part of you know what what we've seen here through the south node well the south node's going into libra and it's like man you are people are not going to be able to sit on a fence like when this thing goes into aries you're you're either all in or you're not that's really kind of where this is all going right and so here we are, we're at this inflection point with this movie, The Sound of Freedom. And like, are you all in or are you not? And if you're not all in, then why not? Well, you're going to question Tim Ballard. You're going to question somebody like Carlos Slim, who was one of the financiers of the movie. Carlos Slim is got his hands in all kinds of shit, right? Like drugs. You name it, right? Traffic. Maybe he's a trafficker. I don't know if he's a trafficker, but he's one of these guys that is an uber elite and has made a lot of money through mostly illicit ends. I think he didn't he buy like Univision or one of those one of those channels in Mexico. So he's also a big media guy, right? Just the name alone, Carlos Slim. You know, it it evokes an image of of like, a, you know, a, a gangster, a, a crime syndicate boss, Carlos Slim. It's a guy that you know he put the money into the movie. And so then again, it's like, well, you know, we're into this whole thing around purity and imperfection. And, and who knows? I mean, maybe Carlos Slim, and I don't know the full story. But maybe Carlos Slim, like, had a, had a kind of you know, Saul Paul moment, and he's like, "Man, I need to do something." You know, maybe, maybe he's like the guy in the movie who was a trafficker and a coke dealer, and now he's kind of all in on the other side, right? So maybe Carlos Slim had—I don't know. I'm not—I'm not inside of Carlos Slim's soul. I don't know what's going on with the guy, right? But it's not uncommon for people to have those kinds 
of epiphanies. And all of a sudden they decide, well, I'm going to do something different. Or like, like, look at the Buddha, you know, the Buddha was, you know, like a rich little playboy and he turned his back in the world. The same with St. Francis. St. Francis was a near do well and uh, came out of an elite family and said, fuck it. You know, I'm not about this life. Right. So can it, can people have these moments where they do pivots and and I'm not here to, to, you know, bail water for Carlos Slim. I'm just throwing this out there. Right. As to, you know, what the motivation was for a movie like this. And we're just going through the characters and, you know, I had a picture of Tim Ballard show up on the Twitter feed and he had literally a tie with Masonic symbols on it. Well, Mormonism came out of Freemasonry. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, Joseph Smith got disemboweled in, was it Nauvoo, Illinois? Isn't that where he got cut in half? Because essentially he kludged the Freemasonic secrets and applied many of them to Mormonism. I mean, really the end goal in Mormonism is you become like a god of your own planet. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the same thing with Freemasonry. You get to become a god, right? You just go all the way up to the ladder where you and God are looking across from each other eye to eye. Say, okay, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for my world. You know, I'm ready to be Zardoz. And so you can't disentangle even Freemasonry from Mormonism, right? I mean, Mormonism is really the first New Age religion in America. So that's lurking in, in, in Tim Ballard's background. And then you have all the weird shit with children inside of Mormonism. That That's part of it. I mean, you, you see where I'm going here. Once you start to go down these rabbit holes, right, you begin to um, really disentangle sort of the, the creation to see its very imperfect parts. So. Tim Ballard also liberated a bunch of kids, right? Somewhere in there. And, and, and that, and there's also the kind of the Freemasonic um, idea of good works that are part of it, you know, like, like the good works offset the other works, right? Which is why it's important to, you know, have this balance, right? The balance between um, whatever is sort of off schedule or off the menu and uh, doing, quote-unquote, good things in the world, right? It's kind of the as above, so below um, maxim. So maybe this is part of the, part of the, part of the formula. Maybe it's part of the formula. Maybe, maybe this is just how it gets worked out. And, and I'm not saying it is. I'm just I'm throwing it out there because it seems to be part of the model. And that's just, that's just Tim Ballard. You know, with his, literally, his Freemasonic tie, his tie to Freemasonry, right? It's all there on his tie. He's not, he's not hiding it. Then you get into Jim Caviezel, which we kind of got into a little bit on the Sunday night show. And I think with Jim Caviezel, a lot of with Jim Caviezel is what you see is what you get, but then there's also other stuff that's hidden, right? And you have, you know, why, 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 why did he adopt three Chinese kids? Why didn't they just have kids, right? If he's really biblical, 
really Catholic. I mean, aren't you supposed to have a bunch of kids? And yet, that and again, I'm not here to tear down Jim Caviezel, right? The guy played Jesus, okay? He paid a price for it. Um, but he, again, he's imperfect, right? Jim Caviezel is not Christ. He's imperfect. And yet, you know, they've delivered this movie. So even Mel Gibson comes into the mix because Mel Gibson is connected to Jim Caviezel and, you know, and Mel Gibson's imperfect. These are all very imperfect people. If they were perfect, they wouldn't have any influence or power whatsoever, right? Um, they're, they're all probably compromised to some degree. And I think it would be very interesting for, and again, I'm not here to, to carry water for them, but it'd be very interesting for people who, just people like us, right? Like I'm really, I'm just a dude. I'm just a dude. But if I had money and power that was equivalent to Mel Gibson, like who would I be and what would I do with it? And more importantly, what would I have done to get there? Because not, a lot of this is not accidental, right? A lot of it is not accidental. A lot of his bloodline stuff, which we've, we know a lot of it is uh, people making deals, right? It's very rare when somebody has kind of this um, accidental rise. And if they, they don't play the game, they're not around for long. And there are actors that, that, that uh, like, I think of somebody like, um, I don't know, Daniel Stern. You know, Daniel Stern was kind of, he was popular for a while. You know, he was in City Slickers, and he was, you know, fairly popular. And Daniel Stern just went away. Like, and you have to wonder why he just went away. You know, Fred Savage, very popular, Wonder Years, and he kind of goes away. There are people that walk away from the life because they realize what the life will take out of them. So we're talking about imperfection. And can you separate those things out from the movie itself? Okay, so let's talk about the movie, right? So what is the movie portraying? Heroic value. A heroic value. Somebody who's willing to sacrifice their career, supposedly, right, with DHS. DHS is a whole other, you know, rabbit hole, like how DHS got started. You know, DHS got started on the heels of 9-11. Now we're really down in a fucking rabbit hole. And so it just goes to show you how normalized DHS has become. Oh, it's just, it's just Department of Homeland Security. It's been there forever, right? Well, no. It rose out of the ashes of 9-11 and became this monolithic titanic structure inside of the government. It really became a, a kind of a government inside the government. You want to talk deep state, Department of Homeland Security is about as deep state as it gets, right? So here it's like, oh, well, he's sacrificing his position with, with DHS. Oh, well, let's talk about DHS. And again, I'm not here to slam the movie. I'm just, we're just trying to take it apart you know, piece by piece a little bit. So then what, what's, so what is the, what, what is the, um, the intention here now? What's the intention? 
if we look at movies as things like predictive programming or the revelation of the method or being hidden in plain sight, like, so what is really going on with the film? Is it um, obfuscating and obscuring the things that happen here in this country and in, in literally millions of homes across America where child abuse, pedophilia, um, in community trafficking, and that happens, by the way, whether it's Mormons or whether it's um, a group of true believers, like there is, there is, you know, in community trafficking, you don't have to go to Honduras. You don't have to go to Cartagena. You, you could go probably, you know, five to 10 miles away and you may inadvertently stumble upon somebody who has a thing going on right here in this country and they don't even have to be like foreign born kids. So are they obscuring that message? Maybe, maybe that's a really, really big thing to think about and look at, but, but this wasn't that guy's life, right? This is based on his life. So we'll just stay with that narrative that it's based on his life and the things that he did. and. Um, again, there are people who will actually take even some umbrage with how his own story is being told, but it's a movie. It's not a documentary. It's a movie. So we have to operate from that premise. Part of being an audience in a movie is for the period of time that you walk into that theater, you suspend your disbelief. Until, of course, you run across something in the movie that reminds you that you're watching a movie. And that doesn't really happen in that movie. Most of that is believable, with, for me, the exception of the end. But that's just, it's just me. Um, because I'm not sure I'd be able to get out of a, a guarded encampment in the middle of the jungle uh, without, you know, knowing much about the terrain uh, i just to me is like okay you have you really have to suspend your disbelief in the ending and that's fine um okay so we have the story of this guy that's liberating the kids and it's a story of heroism and sacrifice and things that don't really get talked about or um documented or promoted they just don't make movies like like The Sound of Freedom anymore. So in that regard, it's kind of a throwback. It's, it's like movies they theoretically used to make, right? Where there is a, a white guy who's the protagonist, and he's not the scum of the earth, and he's not the object of the evils of the West and colonization. So I ask you, is that a bad thing? Right. Is that a bad thing? So we know that the guy who it's based upon might have some unusual relationships with certain groups, Mormons, Freemasonry, et cetera. Right. But for the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine years, men and white men have been getting kicked in the nuts. Right, just being kicked in the nuts, and I and and I don't see any other movie or any other show 
that is promoting a different version of that narrative. So I ask you, is that bad? And, and, and you know, are we just so hungry for crumbs that will overlook some of the imperfections? That's the other side of it. Like I'm, I'm playing a little devil's advocate on both sides today with the, with the film. And, you know, I was, uh, I was texting uh, uh, our buddy, Johnny, and he hadn't seen the movie and was wondering if he should see it. And I'm like, look, if spending money to get a ticket and that ticket results in sales and those sales get Hollywood or people in the movie industry to rethink what and how they can make movies about because it's all about money and generally a copycat industry, then it might be worth it. You know, it's not the sound of freedom, but it could be a movie, two or three movies downstream that maybe gets to the truth and the theoretical players, you know, might be a little less tainted in terms of their relationships or their intentions. And I'm not saying that Jim Caviezel's tainted, but there is some weird stuff in his background, you know? And the other thing too about Jim Caviezel, this is, and I, I didn't remember this um, during the, the show on Sunday night, he was in a, a TV series called person of interest. And I, you know, I remember, I think I had cable at that time. I think I had, um, I forget. It was, what was it? Uh, sling. So I'd have access to to uh, to some of these stations, and I remember seeing promos for Person of Interest. And the premise of the store of the of the show was that Jim Caviezel was part of a special unit, and he worked with this guy who was kind of like um, a, a savant. And somebody who was on the spectrum. And I, I believe the personification of that individual was that he was Jewish, right? So he comes out of this, you know, sort of Asperger's spectrum-based, you know, kind of neurotic, um, OCD kind of version of a particular individual from a particular group. Trust me. I'm not being uh, too hyperbolic here or, 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 or too, um, what's the word? Um, God, I'm, I'm blanking on it. Um, just watch the movie pie by Darren Aronofsky. You'll, you'll get the picture, right? You will get the picture um, or even rain man, right? With Dustin Hoffman. A little bit of a different version, but that's the picture. And so what that guy did is um, he was able to create a computer model that could target individuals before they actually committed a crime. So it was a pre-crime show. And I thought to myself, well, this is kind of fucked up. Why would why would Jim Caviezel be in a pre-crime show? Like if Jim Caviezel is, is all about who we think Jim Caviezel is, 
Why is he in a pre-crime show promoting pre-crime? So the only thing that I could come up, come up with, because he's not stupid, right, is that that was his penance for playing Jesus. Like, if you want to work again, this is the guy you got to play, right? If you want to feed your family or whatever, this is the guy you got to play. Now, maybe the true Jesus-like character said, so I'm not going to play this. I'm not going to play this role. You know, so then what do you do? You become somebody who rises up and then goes away, and then what? It, it, in some ways, it's kind of like being a politician. Politicians generally come into the game with a goal that they're going to make their lives, the lives for people better, right? Like, I'm going to represent the people. I'm going to do, I'm going to do good, good by them. I'm going to be a servant of the people. And then what happens? Well, along the way, they realize that the system is riddled with imperfections. And they do deals. They do compromises. Well, I'll sign off on this because if I sign off on this, we'll get this, right? This happens all the time or used to in Washington. And there was a weird kind of check and balance where one side would get one thing and the other side would get another thing. And so both sides would kind of advance their own cause. And it was, it was the, the unspoken checks and balances. That's all gone now. That, that's, that unspoken check and balance were, you know, the quid pro quo. The only quid pro quo that exists now is a very one-sided version of quid pro quo. But that's what happens. So I would say that it probably happens with individuals too, inside of, you know, the acting business or the theater world, or, you know, they get compromised. So how compromised is he? You know, is he so compromised that he's going to be a gatekeeper and lead you, you know, into the side of the mountain, like the Pied Piper Hamlin? You know, how willing are you to follow Jim Caviezel? Right. I mean, and then what is it, what is being asked of you at a certain point? These are all hypothetical questions, but we'll stick with the movie. So what is the movie promoting? Now I've heard the movies promoting that the, the whole idea behind the movie is that parents um, are going to want to get their kids chipped. Right. Like back in the day, uh, I, I think they still do this. The Freemasons have their their child fingerprinting program. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, "You gotta be fucking kidding me!" I, I we were at a we were at one of these street fairs. It was in Burlingame, California, and there they were. Right? I was with my kid, and I, I was I was let's, let's put it this way: I was awake. I'm like, "What are you guys doing here?" Oh, we're, we're, we're helping parents so that their kids can get fingerprinted in case anything happens. And I'm like, these are Masons. They had a table. And, they were, and so they were licensed in order to do that, right? And I kind of, you know, asked them a few questions. I'm like, don't you think that's a lot of information to be given away on a kid? Oh, there's nothing, you know, evil or bad about it. I'm like, oh. So these guys must have been the, the the porch variety, right? So is this movie 
um, kind of a dog whistle so that your kids get chipped. If it was, did a shitty job. First of all, my kid doesn't live in Honduras. Um, second of all, I don't think there was any part of the movie where somebody suggested, hey, you know, if these kids were chipped, we would, you know, we'd be able to find them. Like, I never really got that. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be a part two or a part three. And maybe it's a kind of the, you know, the frog in the boiling pot. And then, you know, maybe that it's like uh, the sound of freedom next door. And it's your kid or somebody's neighbor. Um, and now all of a sudden you're like, you're like oh, wow. Yeah, let's, let's chip them up, right? But I never, I didn't get that from the movie. That was not the message of the movie. Now, again, it might be the first of a number of films in a series. I, you know, apparently there's another one in the works where it's um, coming from the kid's perspective, right? So we, it, it, there's enough financial success for the film that they probably won't have any problem financing the sequel or the third or whatever, right? So, you know, it's clearly an unfinished project in a lot of ways because we don't know where it's all going right but it starts here you know it doesn't start here it actually starts in central america but it starts with this movie so i don't really get the whole uh, he's a mormon and they fingerprint want to chip your kids i don't get that from the movie there's a scene at the end of the movie where um, spoiler alert here a little bit, where he goes into the deep, deep jungle of Colombia, where, you know, the dealers are, and uh, the, 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 the rebels are, and the coca producers are, really. And um, they have these syringes, because he's, here's the other side, right? The other part is that he has to pretend that he's with the um, World Health Organization and go in and vaccinate people, right? That's another part of the movie. You know, in that, that it's, it's a weird part, right? It is a cognitively dissonant part of the movie because, again, you're, sus you're suspending your disbelief. You're like, oh, what's really important is for him to get this one kid. Like, he's obsessed with getting this one kid. And so who cares if, you know, he has to pretend he's a doctor and go into all these different communities and inoculate them. Now, maybe he was just shooting them up with um, saline. Maybe, I don't know. They didn't make, they didn't, they didn't point that out in the movie. They didn't say, Hey, look, you know, we know how you feel about uh, vaccines. We're giving you saline. And then all of a sudden you would you would hear it from, you know, the anti-vax people or the pro-vax people rather. Like, do you see that? See that? He lied, right? I mean, so it's it's kind of weird territory because in order for him to penetrate deeper into the, you know, the 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 territory where this girl is, he has to have a completely different identity. He has to be a doctor giving out 
vaccinations. What was it? Malaria. It was from malaria. You think, okay, well, malaria is not too bad. We'll just ask Bill Gates. And maybe that's really what it was, just malaria shots. But he has to play that role, right? And so when he goes into the deep back country, he's got syringes with um, chips in them. So this, so they're, they're fine unless they're about to be found out. And if they're about to be found out, he's got to shoot the syringe into him and then implant the chip so they can find him. That's in the movie. That is in the movie. He never shoots the syringe into him. Okay. So it's there. But it's it's not like, oh, look. He didn't they didn't he didn't take the syringe and hit the girl with it and say, look, here, you have, you have to take this. So that they could, you know, find her from that point forward in case something had happened to him. Right. That's not part of the movie. But I could see why the critics of the film might bring that up as a point of discussion. But it's a leap, right? It's a bit of a leap to say, well, this is all about chipping your kids. Now, if they wanted to do a movie about that, they could have done that. But that's not to say that in movie number three, um, or maybe even movie number two, that that doesn't come up, right? It could. It could come up. So there's a great deal of kind of digging and speculation. Owen Benjamin got into it, right? Owen Benjamin was accusing Jim Caviezel. Of, Jim Caviezel had to watch child porn to get into the role, right? And Owen Benjamin took him to task. Like, why do you have to watch a bunch of child porn to get into the role? Because I think Jim Caviezel stated that. So it's a question to you. Does Did he have to do that in order to get into character or in order to understand, like, how bad the shit is? He's a, theoretically, he's a method actor, right? Or could he have just imagined? Did he have to do this? Because Owen is calling him out. Owen is basically saying, hey, you know, are you a pedophile? And then he's mentioning the, the adopted Chinese kids, right? So again, right, there's all this weird kind of backstory stuff that people are try- having to reconcile with the movie. And so you're left with the movie. Can you enjoy the, can you take something away from the movie in spite of the imperfections of the players and the creators? It's a question. Can you enjoy a Robert Palmer video without looking at those heads thinking fucking eyes wide shut and the tracking shot thinking the shining, right? I mean, everything is postmodern and postcultural. Everything is referential at this point. And is anybody clean? Can anybody step up? I, I just told you about Bill Cooper. He was an abusive fucking alcoholic. You know, Bo Greitz was later kind of, you know, 
tabbed as like one of these, you know, kind of, you know, secret society guys, right? Like, you know, then he was work, hanging out with, you know, this group in Idaho and this woman was, was uh, channeling this Pleiadian, right? It's like, there's always like the weird kind of backstory, you know, I, we did Ross Perot a couple of weeks ago on the star of the day. And somebody brought up the fact that Ross Perot was a plan, right, to split the vote uh, when it came to Clinton Bush. Um, I don't think Ross Perot was a plan to split the vote. Clinton was going to win that election. Period. End of story. George Bush fumbled. He threw the whole thing, right? Like, like the George Bush. And by the way, I don't even think that was George Bush whoever, whatever that replacement model was, was highly ineffective. The George Bush pre-9-11 would have eaten Bill Clinton for lunch and shit him out before dinner, right? That George Bush was a killer. The guy that was debating, and, and that was not the same George Bush. And then over time, we knew that the Bushes, and the Clintons are, you know, they're like this, probably even related, right? I mean, that's he he called Bill Clinton like his second son, you know, that's all that Arkansas shit. Um, I don't think he needed Ross Perot to get in the middle and drain the vote. I think Ross Perot ran because I think he believed that people were getting fucked over. Is Ross Perot clean? He helped Walmart become, a, you know, a, a Goliath, a game changer, uh, a, a tax-free portal to China and manufacturing. Did Ross Perot set out to create his uh, just-in-time software to do that? I don't think so. I think he looked at it as being something that would be efficient. And when you're efficient, you improve your business theoretically. You create more profit. You create, you know, more opportunity for more people. I don't think Ross Perot sat down and said, I'm going to create this so Sam Walton can use it and destroy every single small business in America. I don't think he did that. But if you drilled down far enough, you could come to that conclusion. So we're dealing with perfection and imperfection. And at what point are we able to live with some degree of the imperfection? And at what point do we look at the imperfections as being problematic? We could talk about Trump and bring Trump into the discussion. Trump is a perfect symbol of that. Trump is really imperfect really imperfect and i don't think he got any more perfect since he left office and at the same time right is is he like a version of draymond green you know the ride and die you know at what point do you no longer ride and die with trump and if you and if you're 
you're you're not the ride and die um, guy or gal. Well, then what? Then what's left? You know, you got Ron DeSantis, or you have Vivek, or you know, and, and trust me, they've all got their shit in their backgrounds, all of them. So I guess if you're a Warriors fan and uh, Draymond Green brings you another couple titles, you're willing to live with the fact that every now and then he can burn the village down, which is what he's done a couple times. Um, and maybe you know you're willing to kind of you know roll with Trump because, well, the options are not so good outside of that. Again, like imperfections. So then it's like what. You know, in astrology, we're dealing with angles. And it's all about the angle of relating. Like, people have contexts in our lives. And if you can resolve the context, right? We'll use, again, Draymond Green, for example. He, You know, he's the bully. He's a thug. Um, and he's our bully. And he's our thug. And as long as we win and he, uh, you know, doesn't eat babies, I can have some relative degree of um, com- that's where I'm looking for copacetic relating to Draymond Green. Like you have, but you have to kind of work it out. But you have to kind of work things out and find the angle of relating. And it's like, well, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if I had to stop watching this team or this guy became too much of a toxic asshole, I can just let it go. Right. Like you, you're developing an angle of relating, you know, and my angle of relating with Trump is that I always thought that he is a world class disruptor. It's like that's what he's really good at. He's really good at disruption. Is he a great leader? I'm not convinced of that. I'm not convinced that he's a great leader. But I am convinced he's a fucking, you know world-class all-time universal disruptor i also believe that he's um has the ability to kind of speak to the people in a way you can see it in his chart but you know he speaks like he's he's rough around the edges there's nothing really polished about donald trump in in a weird way it serves him right so it's about the angle of relating. You know, I don't see Trump as, you know, the savior to our system. If if anything, I see I see him as a, you know, a my more than minor, but I see him as 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 a roadblock to sort of the global hegemony. Even though he signed off on a lot of it. Right. Like he's a he's enough of a disruptor that things can kind of go off track, whether they're intentional or not. Like like he brings enough chaos to the table that could keep the wheels of you know the World Economic Forum and all the other stuff from just completely steamrolling us. And some of it may not even be really intentional. I'd like to think it is. But that's that would be my angle of relating with him. And maybe some other minor angles. But 
that's what we have to do, right? We have to we have to establish the angle of relating. And if you can watch the movie and experience the movie as something that culturally is really an anomaly, then, then you're getting something out of it. At least that's kind of what I'm getting out of it. I'm not looking to as to this movie as like really inspiring or, you know. But I understand why people would. Because people need fuel and they need victories. Jason, Jason Whitlock does this all the time. Like that's fuel for Jason Whitlock. He's kind of a ride or die guy. Right? Like he's he'll just go with it. Um so yeah. Who's perfect? And at what point do you say, I'm out? I'm out. Not for me. I was able to go to the movies. I haven't been to a movie theater in long. I think the last movie I saw in a movie theater was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then prior to that, I think the other movie was The Mule with Clint Eastwood. So it's been a while. So I got to go to a movie. I got to experience a movie. I got to smell popcorn. I didn't get any, but I got to smell it, right? So, you know, it was it was an experience. And I hadn't been to the movies in a long time. And basically, I watched kind of a watered-down action movie with um a message that was kind of preloaded so that a lot of people who have been really invested in stuff like child trafficking and um adrenochrome and all all that stuff it's like their holy grail and is there anything wrong with that probably not i mean i don't think any any of us want it you know, but then I'm, you know, I'm going through and I'm going through the Twitter threads and and I'm seeing threads where, you know, adrenochrome is, you know, it's a lie, uh, it's propaganda. Hunter S. Thompson mythologized it. Yeah, Hunter S. Thompson was a nasty, nasty man. He didn't just mythologize it. Hunter S. Thompson lived it. You know, it's, you know, again, so now we're into hipster territory, right? Anyway. Uh, it, it all depends on where you want to chime in on it, right? If you want to see this movie as um, an explication and a personification and a projection of your own morals, reality, journey, et cetera, and you're willing to look past the imperfections, man, it's your movie, right? You're in the ride or die seat of the car. If you're willing to understand the imperfections and find something in the movie that is worth seeing, or you can kind of disentangle from whatever trappings there are, go see it. If you are an ardent perfectionist and you believe that the cooks and the ingredients of the soup are genetically modified uh, and inorganic, uh, then it's not your film. And good luck finding something. Good luck finding something that 
is of that variety. And maybe people can just be steadfast in their beliefs. And through that steadfast nature, you know, they'll create something that is um, untainted. But even then, like I think of the whole process of creation, because when you create something with other people, other people are really imperfect. They're really imperfect. And so even the process itself, right? You get a bunch of people that all agree on the same thing. Like I could get a bunch of Christians together and they all agree on the same thing, right? And they all hold each other accountable to their uh, weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell them, go create a movie or go create some art. Guarantee you, probably pretty fucking shitty. Right? It would be completely overt, filled with all kinds of messaging. Um, and, you know, it's groupthink and consensus. And you get um, the movie left behind, which is not bad, right? It's got, it's kind of left behind, it's kind of effective with Kirk Cameron. But then you have a whole host of other movies in the wake of that movie, which do that, and they're they're not that effective. But what they do do is they reinforce somebody's belief system. And in that case, I think that you know they hit their goal. But a lot of the people who are are in, who are disentangling it will then create something. Try to create something and see how easy it gets it's not easy at all um and again i'm not here to defend the movie i saw it you know do i regret seeing it no i don't regret seeing it at all you know am i is is it going to be the thing that is going to fuel me and champion my crusade no but that's just not how i'm wired some people might be the thing that i'm concerned about is not the, you know, the, the the chipping programming, which I think is pretty thin, is the fact that you're going to see a bunch of people go into full vigilante mode with this child trafficking stuff. Full-on Paul Kersey death wish stuff. It's already starting to happen. I've read a few stories. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how distributors and movie theaters deal with the success of the movie because they know that it's going to attract a particular crowd, but they also know that fucking outperformed Indiana Jones. And to me, that's a win. I'm sorry. That's just a win. I I don't care how you slice or dice this thing, you know, just steamrolling Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford, who I think is an asshole. Thumbs up. That's a win. Okay, so I wanted to talk, how much time do we have left? I wanted to cover two things. And this is, again, about like this idea of perfection and imperfection. There are two stories that grab me. And they're both about synthetic beings. All right, so hang on to your, hang, by the way, Chataria, sorry, Got into, just wanted to get into a flow today. 
and you guys just chat away. Just chat away. I love you in there, right? Just, but I need to just kind of get into a flow today. Tomorrow we'll have a little uh, meet and greet. It seems like at least one show a week. I just have to kind of get into the material and try to grab it and, and stay with it so that there's enough of a theme. Um, let me show you uh, some really bizarre stuff. And again, it has this, it's all about perfection and imperfection. Okay. So this is about Jeff Bezos and Lauren Sanchez. It's from the Daily Mail. Still in her prime, Amazon billionaire, Jeff Bezos' fiance, Lauren Sanchez. When did fiance start having two E's? What's not had one with the umlaut or the that little diacritical mark? Lauren Sanchez, 53, beams in two-piece, flaunting toned abs after a dinner with friend in Santa Monica's Giorgio Baldi restaurant on Amazon Prime sales day. So they're celebrating. All right. So Lauren Sanchez is the woman that uh, Jeff Bezos left his wife for. And she and her husband were a friend of the family. She's a former news reporter, right? She is an absolute piranha. She's a barracuda. All right. So this is what Jeff Bezos's money and time can buy. Now, this is the superficial search for perfection. So she has the first set of boobs I've seen that defy gravity. Like these are gravity-defying boobs. These are probably the best anti-grav boobs money can buy. Now, here she is with Bezos and her absolutely fake-looking tits. Right? Just sunning themselves. This was last month. Uh, I guess that's his mega yacht in Koru. They're just living the fucking life. But then she starts to look, I mean, I think she looks weird. And she's all, you know, strutting her stuff. Perfection. And I'm like, okay, now she's looking kind of grotesque. Like, this is kind of weird, right? Now it's grotesque. She's kind of verging into that territory where so much work has been done on her face that, that she's almost like on the Donatella Versace train. In her gravity-defined boobs. Bezos is so taken with her that he put this um, on his yacht. That's her. 
And here she is again with the gravity-defined boobs. A bit of a better picture, probably with some filters. But this, but again, like she's like these to me, these lips, and they're fucking surreal. You know, she's like a cartoon character. Maybe she's trying to be Jessica Rabbit. This is the island you guys they hung out at. This is the quest for perfection. This is what it looks like in the flesh. The quest for perfection that we're seeking in um, the gatekeepers or the culture warriors. When you apply it with science, that's what it looks like. It becomes a caricature of itself. It, it, it's just weird, right? Like Lauren Sanchez in 10 years is going to look scary. Really, really scary. But that's what Jeff Bezos' money will do. It'll buy her the best trainers, the best diet, uh, the best plastic surgeons, theoretically. Right, putting all of his money to use, so uh, Lauren can be that arm candy for eternity. Now, there's another side of the quest for perfection that is weird. Yes, weirder than that. Are you ready for this? In order to soul search and find the, 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 the inner truth of who they are. Because sometimes you got to leave, you got to leave your environment, especially if the environment's become kind of toxic and rough. You need a new environment. You need to be able to get away, have some space, and see yourself objectively. Bond with yourself. Refine the best part of you. And do you know who did that? Dylan Mulvaney. And you know where Dylan Mulvaney went? He went to Peru to do ayahuasca. Can you fucking believe this? And of course, what does he do? He makes a travel log out of it. Hey, here I am with llamas. Right? Like... If Dylan Mulvaney was like even remotely serious about trying to figure out what the fuck happened to him and how an entire country turned on him, uh, he wouldn't be going to Peru to play uh, Dr. Doolittle's assistant and sip ayahuasca, which is, according to Dylan Mulvaney, that's what he did. So here we go. Dylan Mulvaney has fled to Peru. They didn't flee. He took a flight to Peru for some much-needed solo travel and soul-searching. After she, oh, really? He's got a dick. Complained that she no longer felt safe in the U.S. The trans influencer, 26, has been at the center of scandals this year, having caused a storm of outrage after partnering with Bud Light in April knocking millions off the value of the beer company after addressing the 
ordeal publicly on her TikTok last month. Mulvaney has announced she's solo traveling in South America to reconnect with herself and filmed herself frolicking with llamas. She told fans in a series of videos, which included posing with a llama. Okay, surprise. I'm in Peru. I'm at Machu Picchu. Isn't this so beautiful? Like, really? Really? Is this how you deal with an internal crisis? No, you just fucking turn it into another TikTok fucking video. The glamorous life. I'm going to find myself. She said, most of all, this trip has me feeling like my own best friend again. And that is the best feeling in the world. I came here to feel something. And I definitely have. I've done shaman ceremonies that were like 10 years worth of therapy. It was wild. So what the fuck happens? See, to me, right, this gets to the heart of people. And by the way, if you do ayahuasca and you have had some kind of awakening or an epiphany about the illusion of the world, God bless you. It worked. Clearly, whatever he was drinking, maybe it was ayahuasca light. Maybe that's what he was drinking. Doesn't seem to really um, have done a whole lot for uh, Dylan's self-awareness. I've seen a lot of llamas. The people who are so kind. I feel very safe here. Good, stay there. Stay there. Maybe maybe start a cult there. It's a little sad I had to leave my country to feel safe, but that will get better eventually. I'm dying for some Trader Joe's rolled chili lime chips. Other than that, I'm so content. I still haven't been kissed yet, but I'm holding out hope. Most of all, this trip has me feeling like my own best friend again, and that is the best feeling in the world. In Peru, same-sex partnerships are not recognized as marriage. In America, gay marriage is recognized as law. People in Peru are allowed to legally change their gender without requiring surgery. So no same-sex marriage, but if you want to be a girl, you can do it. Uh, the Bud Light sales. Dylan Mulvaney, you are the best thing that ever happened to Bud Light. One of the shittiest beers in the world. So there you go. Somebody entirely imperfect. Taking a little sip of the vine and about 10 shamanic journeys with all these cute little shamans and their llamas. Restoring peace and order to their inner life. The most imperfect, perfect perfect and perfect being on the planet. What strange times we live in. Dylan Mulvaney, ayahuasca journeyer. Not a ringing endorsement for ayahuasca. Just saying. All right, I'm out of here. Um, Chataria, we'll hang out tomorrow. We'll spend some time together. Connect, we'll connect. Thanks for being here. Love your imperfections to the best of your ability. Don't use them as an excuse to not do anything about them. Not with Mars and Virgo. 
Um, and this other stuff, right? You just, you're going to have to find, we're, we're all going to have to navigate being in a very imperfect world in finding value or finding meaning where we can in not getting attached to the creators and the messengers where we can't. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a selective process because there's nobody, nobody you'll find that is going to be completely and utterly perfect. And if they are, they're living in a cave somewhere. They're in a monastery and they're not doing much social influencing other than maybe a, a daily prayer, right? Anyway, that's it. Thanks for being here. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Use your head in order to discern what's real, whatever real is for you, and your heart to sip and what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Thanks for being here. Uh, don't forget our good friends at True Hemp Science. Spend $100 or more, type in 15MINS on checkout, and you will get some free goodies in your already good goodie bag you're getting from Chris. All right. Take care. Bye for now.